afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? What's going on? Welcome to Sons of Saturday Irish. I'm Tyler Rojack, and I'm joined, as always, by Luke Smith. And it's a big week. Uh, USC week. SC hate week. Rivalry week. Whatever you want to call it. It's finally here after Notre Dame had this past weekend off on a much-needed bye. We're at the halfway point of the 2021 regular season. Notre Dame is 5-1 and one and ranked number 13 in both the AP and the coaches' poll. Um, despite the fact that the USC football program is in a state of free fall at the moment, and that's putting it kindly, to be honest, it's more like... Uh, Shitstorm, hellscape, dumpster fire, catastrophe, only comparable to Chernobyl. However you see it, uh, it's always it's always going to be a big game because they're still USC, they're still Notre Dame's biggest rival, and they've still got some really talented players who you know are going to get up for this one because it's a rivalry game and it's almost always a battle when the Irish play these guys. At the time of this recording, I'm seeing Notre Dame as seven-point favorites uh, after the line initially opened at four and a half, and the over-under is at 58. Today, we're going to give our thoughts on what this rivalry means to us. Before we take a look at the game coming up on Saturday uh, on primetime on NBC, we're also going to be joined by Joe Schmidt, the former Notre Dame starting linebacker and captain who grew up in Orange County, not far from USC, to talk about his career at Notre Dame, and he shares some of his thoughts on this year's team as well. As it pertains to Saturday, Luke, I believe you or I have mentioned it before on this podcast, but there was a point in time in both of our lives where the thought of beating USC almost seemed impossible, and for good reason. USC won eight in a row against Notre Dame from 2002 through 2009, and they were competing for the national championship on an annual basis. But since then, the tide has turned in Notre Dame's favor as they've won the last three matchups against SC and six out of the last eight. So, Luke, when you think about this rivalry, what comes to mind? Uh, a childhood ruined. Um, <laughs> I mean, in my mind, USC's the biggest rival we have, and, and they absolutely ruined my childhood. I mean, from kindergarten through seventh grade, we didn't beat them. Uh, there were several ass beatings, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2007, <laughs> even 2006. And then, you know, you had obviously 2005, which really I think might have been a scarring moment for me as a third grader. Um, and then the close call in 2009 to – was the first night game at Notre Dame Stadium in 21 years? It was. And first game with music in the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, whole new helmets for that one. And then we just laid an egg. Well, yeah. And it's funny because people freaked out about Crazy Train for that game. But I think I'd take that back over whatever the fuck DJ Sticky Boots' replacement was playing the Cincinnati <laughs> game. Um, anyways, if you'll recall, in that game, we fell behind 17 nothing in the first half. Battle back with Tommy Rees at the helm. We had a George Atkinson the third kick return for a touchdown, actually. We're down 17-10, about to go in for the score to tie the game. Tommy has to come out. He hurts his knees. And Dane Christ 
fumbles a snap at the one-yard line for the second time that season, and the ball bounces back 20 yards and is returned 80 yards for a touchdown instead of it being a tie game. I think what probably sucked the most about that one was my dad and I somehow ended up behind the USC band in the first row, and we just had to listen to that god-awful fight on like a million times. And we also had this bozo next to us in USC apparel, as obnoxious as they come, and he had a license plate that said USC Psycho, and he was just holding it up like he like thought he was the man. And so at that point, my dad made it his mission to get this guy booted. And as we soon discovered when my dad called the usher over, he was sitting in the wrong seat, so he got kicked out. So then, like, the whole section just started cheering as he was getting kicked out. But that's kind of my one memory from that game. And, and actually, a funny part about that is after this game, I, I created my Twitter account that I have now. And, and if you look, my first tweets ever are at, at USC Psycho berating him for sitting in the wrong <laughs> seats at the game. So not a lot's changed the last decade. You started young. But, yeah, look at him. He claims he hasn't missed a USC game since 1992. But I, I digress. Um, on the more positive side of things, like we said, like we didn't think that they were going to win ever growing up. So 2010 was obviously very cathartic. 2012 was really special, and I know you want to get to this later. 2017, I think, was the most the best night I've ever had in Notre Dame Stadium, just like the best game I've ever seen there. And then 2018, once again, I really thought SC was going to ruin things for me. My senior year of college, we fall behind 10 nothing, But thankfully, we came back, and in downtown L.A. that night was a lot of fun. But I just – I hate USC. I mean, I, I remember that 2005 game so vividly and just like how invested I was that I – I got to leave school early the day before, so we'd go down for like the pep rally. I mean, the 2009 one I mentioned, the the close call, the the Rocky Ishmael speech at the pep rally before that, where he just says, oh, I "Forgot about ridiculous." That. He just it ends tonight. It ends tonight, and it actually would have ended tomorrow if it ended anything. But <laughs> it didn't end, but like it's uh, there's a lot of USC memories, and uh, I fucking hate them. So I'm looking for another ass beating with the Irish on top this Saturday. Yeah, I feel like for fans, it could vary, you know, how much you hate a specific team. Like, I could understand some fans hating Michigan more than USC. But yeah, for me, it's not that, close. Yeah. I can understand some points, just depending on where you're from and how many Michigan fans you have to deal with. But I'm with you. USC is the main rival. But at the beginning, when you were talking about a childhood ruined, it basically sounded like we were just in a therapy session. I mean, is we kind of were, football right? in this room right now? Yeah. I, I, like, it's <laughs> like I'm just going at this, like abusive ex-husband or something, but I I don't know. I mean, they really did ruin a lot. Like, I I guess I will say in the last few years, because they've sucked so much, and by the way, if we win this week, we'll have beaten them four straight times the first time since the Holtz era. Um, It's maybe lost a little bit of it for me, but since we didn't get this last year, I've really, like, dug in, and I'm like, wow, I actually still hate these cocksuckers. Like, can we just please just bury them? So, um so, yeah, so I, it's back now. But Michigan, for me, yeah, I mean, I guess the last time I went there definitely probably broiled off some hate for me, but it's still not close to this. We haven't really had a premier Notre Dame-USC matchup in a really long time when both teams were ranked pretty high. In 2017, I believe we are probably both in the teens. I think we were dogs. Yeah, that would make sense because they had Darnold, but they, they had already had a loss at that point. In 2015, similar deal. Um, Notre Dame had lost to Clemson by that point. So we haven't had a top 10 matchup, I think, since 2005. I think that's probably right. And we sort of glossed over the 2002 loss. 
<laughs> that you and I talked offline about this before earlier in the day as we were just sort of researching some random stuff. Notre Dame was ranked seventh at the time. This is back in 2002. USC was ranked sixth, last game of the season at USC. Mm-hmm. Notre Dame put up 109 yards of total offense <laughs> in this mm-hmm. one. Total. Mm-hmm. Four quarters. College football game, 109 yards of total offense. Uh, USC put up 610. I mean, that's, Carson, that's yeah. how Carson Palmer won the Heisman. <laughs> there was a stretch of four years where three different USC players won the Heisman, and each one of them stamped it by shredding Notre Dame's defense. It started in 2002. Carson Palmer threw for 425 yards and four touchdowns. He wins the Heisman less than a month later. 2004, Matt Leiner threw for 400 yards, five touchdowns against a 6-5 and five Notre Dame team, so it wasn't as impressive. He wins the Heisman. 2005, you know the story, Reggie Bush eviscerated the Notre Dame defense despite the fact that the Notre Dame grounds crew purposely let the grass grow a little bit longer than usual in an attempt to slow him down. Didn't work. He put up 195 yards of total offense, scored three touchdowns, and then just twisted the knife when he pushed Matt Liner into the end zone for the go-ahead touchdown with three seconds left on the clock. But for me, I think the 9 loss, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the 2005 loss was, was the most brutal given the stakes and everything that happened in that game. But the 2009 loss was especially brutal because that was the year that Weiss was supposed to finally have the team back on track after two god-awful seasons. Uh, it was like a point of reckoning for the program. Notre Dame had just got back in the polls. I think they were ranked 25th at the time. And USC went up 34-14. But then Jimmy Clausen and Golden Tate have this epic fourth-quarter comeback. They bring it to 34-27. They're driving. They have a chance. They're actually at the USC four-yard line with like 10 seconds to go, run a couple plays. Uh, season on the line, we ran it out to uh, Duvall, Duvall Kamara. Kamara. Yeah, <laughs> and we had Rudolph bottom of the screen, one-on-one. Whatever. Uh, Notre Dame lost that game, and then after that, that was kind of the point with me where I was like, Notre Dame's never going to beat them. It's never going to happen. But then mm-hmm. Pete Carroll fled USC and their impending NCAA sanctions to go to the NFL. Brian Kelly was hired, and... And things have really changed, but obviously the demise of USC and sort of the rise of Notre Dame under Brian Kelly, just it all happened at the same point, and I kind of miss those. Like I really want a, a big-time top-10 matchup with Notre Dame and USC just because we, we haven't seen it in a long time. You're right. We really haven't, and I just looked. 2017 was 12 versus 11. Um, I think we were dogs, though, in that game, if I recall correctly, because um, they were 11th, we were 12th. But, yeah, that, that, two, that 2009 game you mentioned is funny because – um, I remember being in the corner of that end zone uh, where they went for Rudolph on the play before that Duval Kamara play. I was with my dad and my brother, and they didn't review it. And I just remember being like, how the hell does that not get reviewed? I was convinced he had a foot down. I'm sure he didn't because he didn't look at it. But that was when replay was still kind of he like was, an He was big, bobbling it, yeah. So where replay that was, was still replay kind was of new. ambiguous. Yeah, a lot of really bad memories. But um, anyways, there there are enough good ones of late, so that's really all that matters. And, and I, I mean – as you said, in 2009, like I think we were like, yeah, this is never happening. But then things really kind of turned on, on its head for USC, and not in a good way either. Yeah, which, if you could pick, what was your favorite positive memory of the Notre Dame-USC series? 2017. I mean, because that day I actually thought we were the best team. In the, I think we could have beat Alabama that day. We played so well that day. We really did. Like We just kicked the shit out of them. Yeah, and the, the thing is, too, like the, the games that – mattered the most in terms of Notre Dame's postseason plans for 2012 and 2018. 
Both of those games were ugly as hell to watch. Uh, 2018 was brutal. I remember I was so pissed off at halftime. I was just doing laps around the Coliseum. Like, I can't believe we're about to lose to USC. Dude, I was having a hellacious travel day because that was Thanksgiving weekend. I was trying to fly back from Louisville to Connecticut, and my flight got delayed. All kinds of flight problems. Like, initially, I was going to get back in time to see the game. Mm -hmm. And then due to my flight changes and everything, I had to watch the first half at a Chili's, <laughs> shout out, airport Chili's, at a Chili's at the Detroit airport. And then uh, we had screens uh, like on the flight, but just really shitty reception. And it was going in and out of the game. It was brutal because I couldn't, I couldn't see what was going on. And then it would cut out. And then I tried to get it. Like I bought the Wi-Fi on my phone. It was a disaster. So I actually didn't get to see Tony Jones' touchdown live, which sucked. We landed. And as my phone was getting cell service again, I just had a moment sit there like, I have no idea what the final score is. Notre Dame was winning when I lost, when I lost service. At this point, I have no idea. And that moment, that rush when I finally saw the score was like the biggest sigh of relief. I definitely said something like, thank fucking God. And there was like a kid next to me and the dad. He definitely gave me a weird look, but I'm sure if I explained it, he would have understood that it was totally justified. Yeah, or you're just afraid of flying either way. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That one was it's fun. We, I remember we went out in Santa Monica after that game, met some really interesting characters at the bar. I'm sure a couple people listening to this will know exactly who I'm talking about. But uh, yeah, I basically ran into some people that purported themselves to be a part of the adult film industry and, and had the proof to show it. And that was autographed. So that was, uh, that was a project that night. That sounds like Los Angeles. Yeah. 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 Um, that 2005 game, just because I was still really young, but I remember like so many parts of it. Like I was so excited for that game. I woke up at like the crack of dawn and it was like October 15th. Right. So I thought it was yeah. like, I was going to have to wear jeans to this game, but it was like, 75 80 degrees that day and i remember just like thinking when we knocked matt liner out of bounds like we're about to rush the field and then they come on the announcement and say with a game clock operator please put seven seconds back on the clock i think that that was probably my loss of innocence it really was right there um (laughs) how old are you eight yeah eight i was in third grade checks out (laughs) yeah loss of innocence at eight years old yeah i definitely remember a lot more about that game than pretty much any other game during my childhood. And there's so much to pick from. I mean, obviously the Zibikowski punt return was incredible. Um, Quinn finding Samarja in the corner of the end zone was a great play. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Brady Quinn scored, that whole drive when Notre Dame needed a touchdown late to come back and take the lead, I mean, they marched right down the field. Like mm-hmm. USC didn't put up any real fight on that drive. And then Quinn runs a QB draw, and you could see just how slow he was compared to the uh, real athletic USC defenders. He gets in the end zone. He's run off the field, pointing to the crowd. You're thinking, you know, this is over. Yeah. I mean, dude, when you really thought it was over is when we got sacks on first and second down on the next drive. I'll never forget there was this di- – or yeah, first and second down, right? Yeah, because then on yeah. third down they – They were way back, back on third down, and they got like a dump play. There was this yeah. USC fan in front of my dad and I losing his shit, like throwing his hat on the ground. Like after, and he left the stadium after that second down. He just left our section and just spoiled USC fan, like was not ready for a loss. Unfortunately, the lucky bastard got a win out of it anyways. But I remember he was losing his shit. And yeah, that one stinks still. Uh, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those losses that 
I, I don't think anyone will ever completely. And the get stadium over. will never be that loud again as it was on the Zivikowski punt return. It's ne- nothing has ever come close. I think the second closest moment is probably Notre Dame Stanford twenty twelve goal line stand after they announced it was upheld, but like nothing else comes close to me. That was just that was such an incredible play. I mean, he just threw off three <laughs> defenders. Well, one of them was the punter, but still, that was just one of those iconic plays. Um, in Notre Dame history, and there's just so many moments like that in the rivalry. Even in the 2012 game, they had a goal line stand in that game, and that was in part due to some questionable coaching decisions by Lane Kiffin. Yeah, I forget he was the coach. <laughs> yeah, and he had some weird play calls late. It wasn't, I don't think it was necessarily a goal line stand. I feel like it was close to the goal line, but they had a fourth and short stop. They were being really aggressive. Notre Dame ends up winning 22-13. Unsung hero of that game, Kyle Brinza, who was just nails and I think hit four field goals in that game. And that was basically what carried Notre Dame because they weren't getting much on offense outside of Theo Riddick. Right. And, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a lot of great memories and some really, really bad memories. But, as I mentioned, Notre Dame has won the last three. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with USC. Obviously, they fired their head coach, Clay Helton, um, after they started off two and two, it seemed like a long time coming. I honestly couldn't believe he made it as long as he did. Um, it almost felt like every year they would win just enough for USC to retain him because they didn't really have another option. Now, I think the going favorite in the media, it seems like James Franklin. I mean, look, like I don't like James Franklin. He's kind of an asshole. Uh, everyone who I've talked to who went to Penn State, and I have a couple old roommates who are uh, pretty well involved in the athletic department, pretty much said that like everyone at Penn State hates him, <laughs> think he's an ass, but he is a really good football coach, and you know he's gotten him to this point, and he is a good coach. So if he ends up going there, I'm sure he'll turn things around. Um, in a way, I kind of hope he does go there, because even if he turns things around, he'd be just a great villain, and I would love watching Notre Dame kick his ass. <laughs> yeah, that's not terrible. Speaking of villains, can you give me a list of your, we'll say top five, most hated USC players or coaches? Like five hated USC figures from your lifetime. It starts with Matt Leinart. Mm -hmm. Absolutely despised him as a kid. Like I think I learned how to hate (laughs) with with Matt Leinart. I remember making so much fun of him because he took those, uh, one of his classes. Ballroom dancing. Ballroom dancing, Yeah. yeah. And everyone roasted him for that. I would say him won for sure. Reggie Bush, but Reggie Bush was a little bit weird because he was just so good and honestly so exciting to watch otherwise. So I'd put him at two, but I don't know how how great I feel about that. Taylor Mays, yep. safety, really hated him. Pete Carroll, obviously. Yep. Um, and honestly, at fifth, I might have to go with Dwayne Jarrett solely for his catch on fourth down. Okay. But that, that rounds out the top five probably. I feel like I'm missing guys. Yeah. Maybe Matt Barkley. But uh, Barkley, I don't know. Those though, are the first like, five I thought of. Barkley only ended up playing like two games against us. <laughs> yeah, 2009 and... 2011. He yeah, won them both. Right. Um, I think I would go Reggie Bush at the top, Pete Carroll two. I'm going to go with uh, Brian Cushing, three, that juice head. Oh. <laughs> He's a douchebag. Um, four, I think I'll go with... I'll go with Liner. And then five, I'm going to go with Chris Gallipo. I don't know if you remember him. Wow. But he was a guy who, after the 2011 game, said Notre Dame quit. They quit. And then Brian Smith, who had graduated the year before, tweeted at him, said, you didn't say that last year when Rob Hughes is running down your throat, you clown. <laughs> Brian Smith. 
So Chris Galipo's yeah. five. And he was also the guy that said, like, Charlie Weiss didn't shake his hand on a recruiting trip. He was just a douchebag. I do remember that. Okay. I just remember with Taylor Mays, he was talking so much trash in that 2009. And then game. Golden Tate torched Golden him. Golden Tate dominated him. That one touchdown he had, I think it cut the lead to uh, 34-27. He caught it and took a huge hit for Mays in the end zone. He was running an over route, caught it, got drilled by Mays. Mays collapses to the ground, and Tate just kind of stands over him talk some trash to him and then even on the first touchdown to get to 34 21 he was double covered Mays was one of the guys Tate mm-hmm. just made an unbelievable play so that was part of it and then the fact that Mays ended up just sucking in the NFL sort of I guess validated some of that hate for him and he wasn't actually that good but I think we spent a good amount of time on the history of the Notre Dame USC rivalry uh, let's shift gears to this Saturday like I said at the beginning of this USC this season has really gone off the rails for them. They're three and three. They had pretty high expectations coming into this year, um, but it's just it's been bad and it's kind of gotten worse as of late. Yeah. So the short of it, defensively, is that they're quite bad. Um, <laughs> more specifically, they still have a couple players um, on the defensive line. Drake Jackson and Corey Foreman are the two biggest names. Foreman, of course, was the number one player in last year's class. He was committed to Clemson for a long time before flipping to USC. I actually think he was like he was at like a Clemson playoff game too. Still, like I, I, I don't really. I kind of forget what happened there. I know he wanted to stay closer to home, but that was kind of a weird situation. Um, he's still very talented. Drake Jackson's status is unknown this week. He was in a walking boot, apparently. Uh, at the conclusion of the last game, he's listed as questionable. They have a ton of injuries across the board. I think they were out 20 guys. Yeah, yeah. that's absurd. Um, but, you know, if Jackson's out, that's big. They should have an opportunity to run the ball this week, Notre Dame, building on that Virginia Tech performance. And, and speaking of which, um, USC lets up five yards per carry on first down, and they let up 322 yards on the ground to Oregon State. That's horrible. Um, they're maybe even worse somehow getting after the passer. They're 101st in sack rate and only have 10 sacks on the year. And half of those came against Colorado. So I don't really know what that tells you. I think a fully healthy Michael Mayer, which Brian Kelly said he is today in in his presser, should have a field day against this shoddy defense. Sounds like Jack Cohen's going to be the starter with Tyler Buckner getting some more reps, assuming he's up to par. Yeah, should we talk about that? I, I do want to talk about that because, you know, in the moment of that game, the Virginia Tech game, that is. I think a lot of people are like, all right, well, now it's just Buckner time. And, like, even after, like, Cone came in and saved the day, I think probably in the immediate aftermath, people were like, well, I mean, it's still got to be Buckner moving forward. Like, two days after that, it hit me. I'm like, what are we saying? Like, Jack Cone's 100% the quarterback of this team. Like, it just hit me. Like, because, like, they all three guys have done things to, I guess, win games. But, like, None of them had done anything to distinguish themselves, really. Yeah. So, like, it's like, of course Jack Cohn's going to start. Like, because also, once you really move on from him, it's it. Like, it's it's done for him. The other guys, I, mean, I don't know what the hell is going on with Drew Pine. Yeah, but, I um, actually, I saw a, a tweet that, like, perfectly summarizes the situation for Notre Dame. Chris from the Rakes of Malapod, he tweeted, I had been pretty sure that starting Pine was the way to go, but the absolute certainty of beat writer reply guys who are wrong <laughs> about nearly everything, that starting Pine will fix everything, has me questioning that belief. And I think that's perfect. Like, yeah. Like, I, I don't want this to be down on Drew Pine. You and I both thought he was going to be the starter before the Virginia Tech game, but clearly, and we're not there in practice, those guys see the players probably more than they see their actual families, unless it's Ed Ordron. But... <laughs> 
basically, it's pretty clear that if the offensive line is just average and give the quarterback a little bit of time, Cone is the best passer. Now, that's a big if, especially given what we've seen so far from this line this season. But I guess I'm really confused. Did fans really think that, like, after that game in which Pine didn't play a snap, Kelly was all of a sudden going to announce him the starter this week just because there was a well, buy? In th- in fairness, like, a lot of what Kelly's done at the quarterback position this year hasn't exactly followed conventional logic. So, like, I, I can understand why maybe you would jump to that conclusion because it's just probably the thing that makes the least amount of sense. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. It's I actually do think this defense, weirdly enough, is a defense that gives Jack Cohn opportunity to be successful. So we'll see. I mean, it could be like a Florida State. Like, I think they're, like, not quite that bad, but they're not that far off from Florida State's defense either, which is insane when you look at who they have on the other side of the ball. But I was actually just, like, dying laughing at Jamie Uyama of Irish Sports Daily's preview of the defense. This is what he wrote. This linebacker, Raymond Scott, has one of the worst coverage grades in the country, according to PFF. He plays rover for them, and that's someone Notre Dame will want to target, especially if Michael Mayer's back healthy. So you think, okay, that's one guy. Then he says, Nickel Greg Johnson is allowing 64.5% completions and has missed way too many tackles. All right, that's not good either. Follows that up with Mike linebacker Kanai Mauga has given up a perfect passer rating against him. (laughs) And then he follows it with safety Isaiah Palomolo is having a down season and the coaching staff has admitted he has lost confidence. So, like, I don't know how many ways you can say it. This defense sucks ass. <laughs> They're horrible. Um, Notre Dame should have a field day. Like, they, not that, like, they've done anything this year to really make me believe that they can light the world on fire. It's just this defense is so bad that they're going to score points. Um, and, and, like, what you'll see from USC defensively, they've gotten a lot – more conservative in recent weeks because of susceptibility to the big play. So bottom line, they can't tackle. They're very bad. This could be a huge game for Jack Cohn to get back to his level of conf- a high level of confidence, as well as the line in the run game. And, and I was thinking this before I really realized how bad USC's defense is. It's like, this could be a game where if they have over 120 rushing yards, I'm like, all right, last week wasn't an aberration because especially after you watch Virginia tech against Pitt, I don't really know what you think about, our offensive line performance, but at the same time, I don't think our offensive line was that horrible against Cincinnati for what they've been. Like they've been, they've improved the last two weeks. And, you, and what do they do this got a really week? good defensive line, right? So this this is with Joe Alt starting and um, with Kristoffic starting. Which once again, the depth chart's wrong again. But Kelly said in his presser today that both of those guys are starting. So go figure. Um, we'll see what that looks like. I, I think really an area of concern for me is that mayor actually is healthy because tight end right now is a position where they do not have a lot of depth. Uh, we announced earlier this week, Kane Barong, freshman tight end, tore his knee. He on a non-contact injury. We already had Mitchell Evans suspended for the first half of this game because of a bullshit targeting call that got called on him setting the edge against Virginia tech. Kevin Ballman's still out as well. So right now you're looking at George Takis is really the only fully healthy and available tight end in the first half of that game. And I mean, they say Michael Mayer's hundred percent. I don't believe that just because it's a groin injury. I'm sure he'll play, but it's kind of an area of concern, but it, his, you know, 40% is better than pretty much everybody else's hundred percent at tight end. So it's okay. I know. And you think about their defense defense as a whole is so much about effort and motivation. And if you're USC, like how motivated are you? If you're a player on that team against 
Utah, it looked like they weren't motivated at all. Like they basically gave up. And uh, Dante Williams, the interim head coach at USC, was asked about that and asked about keeping his players motivated now that they're three and three. You know, they're eliminated from pretty much anything other than a bowl game at this point. And he said, quote, I never really think anything's off the table because the Pac-12 seems to beat up each other. Nothing's ever off the table. It's off the table if you start to quit or give up. And I don't see that in this team or group of guys, end quote. The fact that he's immediately going to the Pac-12, like this game has no bearing on the Pac-12. USC players have to fly across the country to play Notre Dame. Again, it's a rivalry game, so I'm going to assume that they're going to come out ready to play. But I just don't know. We've already mentioned they've dealt with a ton of injuries, especially on defense. They don't really have a ton of depth. But then again, like it seems like the Notre Dame offense just finds a way to get in its own way. This would be a great, great opportunity to just figure it out on the offensive line. And I just want to see them run the ball. Like more than anything else, like if Cohn is an average game and we go back and forth between him, Buckner, whatever, I'm used to it. But please give Kyron. Kyron needs a hundred yard game. It just has to happen. Yeah, I think that that's going to be a big thing moving forward. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that I didn't touch on there from a defensive standpoint, opposition wise. Notre Dame weirdly played like five top 40 defenses in their first six games, which I don't really know how much I buy of that. I think Wisconsin's defense is solid. I think Cincinnati's defense is good. I don't know that I think Purdue's defense is that good. Uh, I mean, Iowa's offense, as we saw this past week, sucks, so that helps those numbers. Um, Toledo, they just lost to Central Michigan, so I don't really know what to make of their defense. But somehow yeah, they're in the statistically, top all those teams are in the top five. But Cincinnati is the only one you could make a legitimate or top, not top five. They're all top defenses, but Cincinnati is the only one where you could make a real. I'd argument. say Wisconsin. Wisconsin's yeah, Wisconsin's defense true. is good. That's true. Um, so yeah, I mean, we'll see. And Virginia Tech actually did hold Pitt well below their average last week. Twenty-eight. They were averaging like what fifty-five points a game. Yeah, so insane. They're favored against Clemson, which is so absurd. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, now we really will see Notre Dame against. It's weird to say this, like not the same level of competition that we saw in the first half, because I don't think we really played anybody that good in the first half, and that includes Cincinnati. But. Um, <laughs> It's it is what it is. That's just the nature of the beast this you year. You know, you should be rooting for Cincinnati to win every game so that that loss looks better, right? I don't give a shit. I'm not thinking about the. I'm not thinking <laughs> about the playoffs. Every team they play, granted, they just played like UCF and Temple the week before that. Right. But yeah, they look really good. As for the offense at USC, Graham Harrell runs the show. He's the OC. He's one of the most popular young minds in college football coaching circles at the moment. You might remember him from his playing days at Texas Tech running the air raid under Mike Leach. He's actually the quarterback who threw that uh, famous touchdown pass to Michael Crabtree against number one Texas back in 08. Uh, He's carried over some of those air raid principles to USC. They certainly love to pass, but not quite to the extent that Harold did at Texas Tech. They do run the ball close to 40% of the time, but the quarterback situation is really unclear at the moment. So Keaton Slovis was in some first-round mock drafts coming into the season. Then he got hurt, and this dude named Jackson Dart spelled J-A-X-S-O-N came into the game for him against Washington State and honestly jump-started the offense. He almost threw for 400 yards, four touchdowns, and ran with no regard to his life. Uh, Was getting killed out there. He actually tore his meniscus, so then it was back to Slovis. And maybe the most absurd thing about the quarterback situation is that Jackson Dart is not actually from Southern California. And if if you've seen him, and if you've seen a picture of him and what he looks like, he's got long blonde hair, looks like he just surfed before the game started. He's from Utah. Uh, 
I think I've met 25 different Jackson darts since I moved to Los Angeles in May. <laughs> anyway, if dart is healthy, uh, I think he's he would get the start. Wait, he tore his meniscus and somehow he's healthy? Yeah, it's remember when Brian Kelly said when Blake Fisher tore his meniscus or partially torn, he was going to be back at six weeks or something. I think we're actually seeing that with Dart. It's partially torn. Okay. And USC's coming off a bye. So anyway, if he is healthy, which is a big if, uh, I think he might actually start. The only thing is Dart is way more mobile than Slovis is. He likes to run. And as I said, he doesn't give a shit about protecting himself. So I don't really understand why they would want to use him if he's got a bum knee. And Slovis has proven... I mean, hell, Slovis gave us fits back in 2019 when he was a true freshman. Mm -hmm. Granted, their receiving core was more talented than it is now. Although, USC does have one of, if not the best wide receivers in college football in Drake London. They just don't really have anyone else. London is 6'5", 210, freak athlete. He actually played on the USC basketball team his freshman year before he quit to focus on football. And... Opposing defenses have tried to double him, but that doesn't really matter because he already has 18 contested catches this season. He's second in the country in receptions of 20 yards or more with 16. For the year, he has 64 total catches for 832 yards and five scores, and this is just in six games. USC's second leading receiver just has 22. So their entire passing game is pretty much predicated on him and for good reason. They've got a pair of good running backs. Texas transfer Keontae Ingram leads the way. He averages 5.7 yards per carry. So when they do choose to run, he can be effective. Uh, they like to run inside the tackles and just take advantage of unbalanced defensive sets who are focused on stopping the pass. Their line isn't great, but it's not terrible. They've been able to protect the quarterback, whoever it is back there, except for Dart, but that's mostly on Dart. Uh, they've only given up seven sacks on the year. And you already mentioned Jamie Oyema of Irish Sports Daily. He pointed out in his preview that Slovis is 2 of 11, throwing the ball inside the 10. And that's due in part to the fact that they just don't really have a strong rushing threat. So they're forced into, like, obvious passing situations and goal to go. Just hasn't really worked out for them. They're 86 in the country in red zone touchdown efficiency. As for how Notre Dame is going to defend them, we saw Notre Dame have a lot of success running nickel, dime, and even dollar sets with six defensive backs in the field at once against a pass-heavy offense in Purdue earlier this season. I expect to see a lot more of that on Saturday with the biggest focal point being Drake London and trying to contain him because uh, he's going to get his. Let's just be honest, especially against our corners, which have, um, I mean, Cam Hart's been really solid, but he kind of came back to earth against Virginia Tech and Tariq Bracey and Clarence Lewis have had their moments, but they've also struggled a bit this year. So we'll see what they do. But it's worth noting that Purdue stud wide receiver David Bell, he just put up 11 receptions for 240 yards against the worst number two ranked team ever in Iowa this past weekend. I know you danced around that, calling them that. I'll just say they were the worst number two ranked team ever. Mm -hmm. And yes, I know Iowa was without one of their starting corners, but still Notre Dame was able to keep. Do you watch their offense? They suck. Yeah, they do. Um, But Notre Dame was able to keep Bell in check to just seven catches for 64 yards, and they played Purdue. I'm just most excited to see how Marcus Freeman utilizes Kyle Hamilton against USC's passing game. Is he going to help out by playing over the top of London at all times? Is he going to play more in the middle of the field to try and force some turnovers? Because USC is certainly prone to them. They've already committed 11 this season, which ranks 96 in the country. I'm honestly not sure. Um, Marcus Freeman has had to go up against the air raid offense before, most notably last year against SMU. SMU was ranked number 16 in the country at the time, had a real potent offense, and then the Bearcats defense held them to just 13 points in a 42-13 to blowout. I don't expect Notre Dame to blitz much. They could still get pressure bringing three or four, 
I think we're going to see a lot of Bo Bauer at linebacker. He's proven to be one of the best linebackers on the team in pass coverage. And as a fan, I just love to see some one-on-one opportunities with Hamilton and London going up for a jump ball. It's not really common considering Kyle plays safety, but I don't know. Maybe he picks him up in the deep third on a play and we could see two future NFL draft picks go at it. Wouldn't that be fun? But that's really just the main thing to watch. Stop London and you'll be fine. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the David Bell thing. I I don't know why Iowa didn't just have Kyle Hamilton knock him unconscious uh, instead of letting him catch 11 balls for 240 yards. Seemed like a much sounder strategy, but what do I know? Um, At least he got to see the inside of our tunnel at Notre Dame and and not the end zone. But um, I I don't know. What I'm kind of curious to see is what Notre Dame does in its dime packages. I don't know if you noticed this, but like one of the things that I talk about a lot is just getting J.D. Bertrand some rest. They had Bo Bauer in the dime package against Virginia Tech, and that, I guess, was getting him some rest, which, like, you know, I don't know how many snaps that is, but it was, it was significant, like eight, yeah. like more than what he – Yeah. Not a ton. Um, so I'm just interested to see if that stays the same after the bye week or what that looks like. I know. I mean, Bertrand, we've mentioned before, he's not the best in pass coverage. He's great at diagnosing plays. I think Pete Sampson said it before on this podcast as well. His play recognition and all that is – really, really strong. It's just when he has to make the plays out in space like that, that's where he struggles a little bit. But um, we're going to see a lot of defensive backs. So uh, will they double London? I have to assume in some capacity. I feel like any time London is split out wide one-on-one against Bracey or or Lewis, they're going to go at him. And, and why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Exactly. But I, I don't really know. We'll see. This isn't the best offense Notre Dame has seen this season, but they certainly are potent. But uh, let's get to some score predictions. Yeah, they might not be the best, but yeah, it's it's probably the first true passing offense we've really seen this year. So we'll see how that shakes out. As Graham Mertz threw game, three TDs. Two of them <laughs> yeah. to the defense. Right. He threw three TDs. <laughs> so USC always plays Notre Dame tough. And I think before the season, I came on this podcast and said that this would be the most difficult game for the Irish this season. Obviously, since then, Clay Helton's been fired and Notre Dame's lost Cincinnati, but I'm still pretty wary of this game. Um, it's going to be a dogfight, and, and this team just hasn't shown me enough to pick a blowout. I think a week off may have made people forget how fortunate Notre Dame was to win against Virginia Tech, in all honesty. Um, Notre Dame still has a lot of issues. Like, they really do. And until they show me that they've overcome them, I, I just can't pick them to, to blow somebody out again. I do think they find a way to win this one. Like they have pretty much every game this year, but I, I think it's close I'm saying Notre Dame scores some points and they also let it up a few and it's 37, 30 Irish. Wow. I feel like now that you pick Notre Dame to win a close one, they're going to blow them out because you've been picking blowouts all year. Uh, I'm with you though. Despite everything we just mentioned about how Notre Dame is more talented and deeper team than USC, nothing has come easy for this group all season. Um, Notre Dame's average margin of victory this season is just 5.8 when you don't take into account the Wisconsin game when Graham Mertz basically had a stroke on the field. Uh, That number shoots up to 10.2 when you factor in that game, but 21 of those points came on defense or special teams. So, I'm expecting another close one on Saturday. Like I said, I hope we see the offensive line build on their performance against Virginia Tech, generate a running game closer to what we would normally expect, and hopefully they play well enough that Cohn or Buckner, whoever's back, there's time to sit back and deliver some throws in the pocket like they did on the last two drives against the Hokies. 
the second half of this season is going to come down to how it's this team's able to develop week to week. It's been a real slow grind up until this point, but hopefully coming off a bye, they can accelerate that a bit, and that will lead to some more comfortable victories. But until I see that happen, until Notre Dame puts on a strong performance for four consecutive quarters in the same game, I'm just going to be a little bit skeptical that this team is capable of blowing out anyone. Um, but they should still score points. They'll find a way to get in the end zone. So I'm expecting Notre Dame to win 34-27. to 27. Okay, so same margin of victory, just three points difference for each side. Yeah, I mean, maybe we're wrong and they do come out, but I just, like, I don't know who is saying this, but, like, bad Notre Dame teams never give decent or good USC teams games, but bad USC teams always give good Notre Dame teams always. or okay Notre Dame teams games. So, unless it's 2017 when Sam Darnold is an idiot and just throws the ball all over <laughs> the yard, but and that, that was apparently a good team, so go figure. All right. I think that about covers it for our USC preview. Let's bring on someone whose ties to this rivalry go even deeper. All right, we're joined now by Joe Schmidt, former Notre Dame middle linebacker and captain of the 2015 team. First off, Joe, thank you for the time, man. We really appreciate it. This is perfect timing considering Notre Dame is about to play USC in a few days and you were raised in USC territory. Coming from Orange County in modern day high school, the last time we saw you in the field was New Year's Day 2016, I believe, in the Fiesta Bowl against Ohio State. After that game, you opted not to pursue an NFL career, but based on everything I've read before this, it seems like you've been doing uh, just fine in the years since. What's been up with you, man? Yeah, hey, thanks guys for having me on. Um, fan of the show and, and what you guys do, so I uh, appreciate it. Yeah, since uh, since school, um, have, have done a few different things, uh, but now I'm a partner at a uh, venture capital firm called Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and um, yeah, so we invest in early stage businesses. Um, before this, I, I worked at a, a startup called Ethos, where we did uh, life insurance and reimagined that entire process so you could do it without a medical exam. Uh, and before that, I worked at another venture firm called Excel. So uh, that's what I've been up to since school, but still watching the Irish every uh, every Saturday we're on and uh, cheering on the guys. So During your playing career, Notre Dame fans became very familiar with your story. In fact, it, it almost felt like a requirement for the commentators to mention it at least once during every broadcast. But it really once. is an incredible story. <laughs> I was going to say, like, every 15 seconds. Come on, man. <laughs> but hey, it's it's an incredible story. You grew up a Notre Dame fan, got a preferred walk-on offer late, and worked your way to a scholarship, then starter, then captain. But let's go back to the very beginning. When did your love for the University of Notre Dame start? Yeah, man, I, I honestly don't know exactly how it started, um, but it's something that kind of tr- I can trace back as far as I can remember. You know, um, I, I've, I've shared the story before, but when I was five years old, my dad sat me down at the dining room table and was like, Joe, write down your goals, um, which is obviously a prepos- preposterous um, you know, thing to say to a five year old who can't you know, really read or write. But together, we came up with three things that day, like go to the park with dad go to Baskin Robbins and play football for the Irish. And I, I don't know why um, play football for the Irish was the third thing. Um, like looking back, it may have been, you know, the Irish were on at like noon Pacific, you know, on Saturdays and my dad would make pancakes and we'd sit there and watch the, watch them together. Maybe it was the gold helmets. Maybe it was Rudy. I don't know. But from when I was that, that old, that's like all I wanted to do. Um, and then when I was, uh, a little bit older, my older sister ended up going to school there like seven or eight years later. Um, and I fell in love with the university in a different way. And, um, it was just something I wanted to do as long as I could remember. And so, um, I kind of begged my way into the university, got lucky and, and, uh, the ball bounced my way, my way a few times on the, on the football field. That's for sure. You said you begged your way 
to the university, which is kind of wild considering you went to Modern Day, which is one of the best high school football programs in the country. You had a really impressive high school career and had other scholarship offers. But as I understand it, you really weren't on the Notre Dame coaching staff's radar at the time. How did you force your way onto that? <laughs> um, uh, you know, yes, yeah, it's, it's a good it's a good question. At the at the time, BK had just taken over, you know, my junior year, right? So before that, it was Coach Weiss. Um, I was on their radar as like, you know, an undersized, um, you know, middle linebacker from Southern California. So they knew who it was, um, but I, I wasn't at the top of their list for sure. Um, and then the coaching transition, and we honestly had a, like a, we were stacked at linebacker as well, right? So it just wasn't really a need. Um, but I was very passionate about trying to go to school uh, at, at Notre Dame. And I was fortunate enough to have a, a, you know, a pretty good senior year and just consistently sent my, ta- my tape to uh, Tim McDonald, who was the guy that was running, uh, you know, basically, you know, player development at the time and, um, you know, got, got my one under the radar and one thing led to another. Um, and actually, I, I remember going to campus on my like unofficial visit um, with Coach Denbrock and, um, and, and Tim and uh, actually going in and talking to um, uh, the dean of the dean of admissions um, and being fully interviewed, uh, like as a part of the process. So it was actually a pretty intimidating, uh, uh, you know, moment for a 17 year old. And I didn't realize that I wasn't into the school at the time. Um, but Don, yeah, but Don Bishop, who is the uh, who is the guy who still runs admissions, um, you know, was, was grilling me. So it was it was actually a super fun uh, super fun story and. Um, I feel very blessed to have uh, come out, you know, the right side of that, I guess, for me. Absolutely. Now, once you made the decision to go to Notre Dame, you you had all the challenges that come with being a walk-on. I don't have to remind you of all those, but after being registered your freshman year, you started to get some action on special teams your sophomore year. I'm curious, what was your approach during those first couple of years and, and how did that manifest into some playing time on a team that went to the national championship game? Yeah. Um, you know, looking back, uh, there's a bunch of fun stories of, really how I came to understand what I needed to do to try to find my way onto the football field. But really like to summarize all of those, it comes down to being perfect. Um, and so for me, I, I think I, it was hard for me to come to terms with this, but like, I was never going to be as athletic as Jalen Smith. I was never going to be as, you know, big and strong as Troy Nicholas. I was never going to be, um, you know, any of these people. Right. And so I had to figure out like what it was going to be. That was my thing and how I was going to try to add value to the football team and add value to the people around me. Um, And for me, that came down to being in the right place on every single play and helping the people around me be in the right place on every single play. So that embodiment, um, you know, starts in practice. And so all I, all I thought about was like, all right, how do I be absolutely perfect on my assignment? How do I be in the right exact position? How do I, gain a step in each, in each of these small little ways. Um, and so that's really what I tried to focus on. The other thing that you kind of mentioned on that uh, 2012 run where I was, you know, really lucky to get on the football field was I realized that, you know, in order to get a shot on, you know, nickel, dime, third down packages, whatever I was going to try to do to start helping us on defense, I was going to have to earn trust on the, the you know, four run teams. Um, and so I just made it my mission to be as, I like, guess, absolutely high uh, impact and high value as I possibly could uh, on those teams. So, you know, that starts in, you know, executing in drills and then really, you know, executing when you get into the football game. And, um, you know, what I got, I actually, my first play against was actually against Navy when we went to Dublin. I had one play, I had one tackle. 
Um, you know, I got in the next play, I had like one or two plays. I had, you know, a tackle on both of them. And so I was just finding my way around the ball. Um, and my big break came against um, Miami actually that year. I we played that. Yeah. And uh, there was the sky kick and I was the safety. And somehow this like up back broke through, the, um, broke through. And like, basically it was me and him. And you could have gone like basically and running back our sky kick for a touchdown. And I absolutely lit him up in front of uh, Coach Kelly. Um, and uh, after that, um, I, you know, that was like, all right, Joe's going to be on the run teams now. You know, he, he can, uh, we can trust him. So you mentioned at the beginning of that, there's a bunch of different stories. Are there any scout team stories that you can share with us? Oh, man. Um, there's, <laughs> there's a million. <laughs> um, I'd say there, uh, you know, there's there's a couple of stories that, you know, back in, back then, uh, Coach Diaco was our was our defensive coordinator, um, and I just vividly remember, um, you know, there was there was one. I'm going to paraphrase this because it's not we don't have time to go through the whole thing, <laughs> but uh, there was one practice where I made a couple of boneheaded mistakes, and you know, at the end of the day, like people make boneheaded mistakes, right? Um, but like I had made a boneheaded mistake when I had like six plays at the end of some practice in spring ball. Um, and I remember talking to Dan Fox after practice and, you know, long story short, Diaco had said a few things to me and um, was not very happy with me in film. And I remember looking at Dan and being like, well, obviously, Dan, this is what happened and making some like excuse. Um, and Dan actually gave me like this amazing, um, Dan was a great football player uh, and a great friend. And he gave me this wonderful advice. He's like, dude, no one cares why you didn't make the play. The fact of the matter is you didn't make the play, right? Like it's not about the excuse. It's about delivering and executing. Um, and I remember just like that hit me so hard in that moment, right? Because at the end of the day, like this is a practice in March. We play in September for the first time. Um, but it's about accountability and it's about being perfect on your assignment and having coach and all the people around you know that you can be trusted to do your job. Um, and I remember standing there next to actually next to the cold plunge for like 30 seconds without moving. Um, and from that moment on, it was like, all right, I'm not making excuses. It's about delivering. It's about being perfect and executing on your assignment every single time. Um, that was a major moment for me. And that was in that, uh, 2012, uh, it was before that 2012 season. Yeah. And then, you know, just a year later, you were in a scholarship. How did you find out and who was the first person you told? Um, I found out, uh, coach Kelly actually, um, had Dave, uh, Poloquin, um, or, or it was either Dave or Chad, uh, shoot me a text and was like, Hey, BK wants to see you before, um, uh, before this team meeting. Sounds like you're getting called to the principal's office. It was totally getting called <laughs> to the principal's office. And, and terrifying. I'm, you know, it's terrifying. And I, I'm still at the point in my career where like, sure. I'd had like a little bit of success in the run teams, but like, you know, I, I'm, you're still like totally skittish anytime you get called into somebody's office. Um, and so, I'm like, all right, this is either really bad or like really good. Um, and obviously your brain immediately goes to really bad at that in those circumstances. So I'm racking my head on like all the different things that I could have done wrong or, you know, was I, was I on time to meetings or whatever? Um, and I went in and, and uh, you know, fortunately it was very good. And, and coach told me that I was getting a scholarship. And um, I remember calling my dad and uh, you know, it was really emotional uh, thing for me because I had had, I had obviously had scholarships to other places where they wouldn't have been out, whatever it is, like 28 or $29,000 a semester, um, you know, to, to send me to school, um, on top of like the exorbitant amount of money they were spending on trying to, you know, feed me so that I was not, you know, 215 pounds, um, instead, 
Um, so I remember calling him, he takes off his, you know, little breathing mask, his little CPAP machine, um, sounding like Darth Vader on this, uh, on this phone call. And he's like, Joe, what do you want? Cause it's 5am when I call him, um, you know, eight, eight was an 8am meeting, uh, in, in, uh, South Bend. So it was 5am Pacific. And I was like, dad, um, I have some news. Like I got, um, you're not going to have to, uh, you know, how about you don't have to pay for school for the next few years. And he goes, that's great, Joe. Well, how, how are we going to do that? And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, well, dad, they got these things called scholarships here at Notre Dame. And I just got one. Um, and so he starts crying. Um, and my mom's next to him. It's 5 a.m. She's my dad crying after, um, you know, picking up the phone with me. So she starts crying like she doesn't know what's going on. She thinks something terrible has happened. Um, and so then I get her on the phone and I tell her, like, mom, I got a scholarship. And then she starts crying for real. It was a, it was a really special moment that I'll never forget, um, you know, what it, what it was like to be able to tell them, like, hey, we just we just saved some money and, and, and you know, we got this uh, this big thing. I think that you really burst onto the scene your junior year when you replaced your old roommate, Jarrett Grace, after he got hurt. And the moment that stands out to me and probably a lot of Notre Dame fans was your big pass breakup against USC in that season. I'll set the scene in case anybody doesn't remember, but Notre Dame's up 14-10 with a minute left in the fourth quarter. USC's driving with the ball on the Notre Dame 41, and it's third and eight. Defense is in a dime set, so you're the only linebacker on the field. Can you walk us through that play and the emotions you felt afterward? Yeah, I mean, you, you set the scene perfectly. Um, what you what you did you talked about earlier, but you didn't mention right now is that this is like the biggest moment of my entire life. My whole life, um, I've like dreamt of playing against USC and making a play to to have an impact on the game. Um, and so my dad and I would go out at night and like I would you know always be making a play to like win the game against USC for Notre Dame. And so this this whole moment like has been built up in my brain forever. And in that game, I had been playing before on third down situations. Um, and for some reason, they get the ball back with whatever you, you might remember how much time left. There might be a minute 45 or something like that. And they get the ball back um, and they're going down to win the game. And they throw they throw me in there instead of Dan Fox and, you know, Carlo and the guys who were starting at the time. And they're and we're running dime. And it's probably the second play. They they run this play where basically I'm not going to throw somebody on the bus, but there was something that happened with someone that was nearby where they bang in like a, you know, call it a 15 yard dig route where like the wide receiver runs up and in guy catches it for like at 15 yards and he runs for like 40 yards untouched. Um, and and uh, we, we tackle him at like the 50. And so I'm like, all right, like somebody, you know, adult supervision is needed. Get us idiots off the field, you know, get somebody else in here because clearly we're screwing this up and they're going to win. And um, instead of pulling us out, Diaco, Coach Diaco keeps me in. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm staying in now. Like I'm just, I'm just playing. Um, and, and I remember like it was this out of body experience where I don't know why I'm still in the game, but I'm still in the game. Um, and so then, um, I remember this though, right back to like being on your assignment and like knowing what's going on around you. I'm remembering this play. So a few plays go by, um, it's third and three, they jump off sides like USC does, right. They, they don't execute five yards back. It's third and eight. Um, and, uh, they line up, they basically line up in a similar formation to what they had run, um, on that play a few plays before to get that huge dig route, um, you know, in on us. And we're in the same defensive coverage. Um, which is a variation of his own defense. And I remember watching the motion, the guy um, over and get into the same split that they had run that last play out of. 
And immediately I'm like, oh God, like I, I know exactly what's going to happen here. So I drop back as they, as they, um, you know, catch, catches the ball and drops back. And I see the same dang thing happen. Um, and I just like leave my assignment. I start running exactly where I think the guy's going to catch the ball. And fortunately I got there right as the ball got there and, and broke it up. But um, it was, uh, it was, it was definitely like, I, you know, I was, very, I was an out of body experience. And I remember like seeing the ball on the ground, jumping up and going bananas. And then Gavari actually made an amazing play on the next play to, to kind of seal the deal and make sure. But um, it was pretty cool because they had the first down and um, to make that play was pretty awesome. So. Yeah. And there was like negative offense, I think in that entire second half. Once oh my God. Out. <laughs> yeah. It was that. not good. <laughs> um, so that brings us to 2014. And, and for you, that was obviously very different than any season you had in years past because, you know, you're the starting middle linebacker from day one and that season started off great. You guys were six and zero, ranked in the top five. And then the refs stole the game away in Tallahassee on that bullshit offensive pass interference <laughs> call. And then you suffered a season ending injury the following week. Uh, in the win against Navy. And then the season really went off the rails after that. Like, I don't need to tell you, in the seven games before you got hurt, the defense was giving up 19 points a game. And then in the four games after you got hurt, they gave up an average of 44 points a game. At the time, a lot of fans and people in the media believed you were the only person on the field who truly understood Van Gorder's new complicated defensive scheme. And we're basically responsible for putting everyone in the right position, calling out all the coverages pre-snap, which is you know, what potentially led to that huge drop in production when you were sidelined. And look, we're not here to throw BVG under the bus because that was your coach, and he did have some success when he's the defensive coordinator. But schematically, did you think his system was more complex than other systems you played in or against? So really, at the end of the day, like, football is football. Like, there are only so many concepts, right? So at the end, what I'd say is that everything boils down to the same kind of fundamental premises, Right. So a fire zone is always a fire zone. Like cover four is always cover four. You know, there's just different ways to dress up like, you know, a bu- like a, f- a few fundamental offensive plays. So I wouldn't say that, like, you know, it was all that complicated. We ran a bunch of exotic stuff to try to basically get, you know, get the advantage over other people. Um, so we had a lot of plays. Um, and and I and I think that, like, it put us in the position to, to, to have success. Um, you gotta, you gotta know what you're doing though. in that, uh, in that type of, in that type of deal. And, um, that it's kind of what I'd say. So I actually loved, I loved that defense because it was extremely multiple. Um, and you could do basically anything. Um, right. So it was, if, as long as you, you kind of knew what was going on, you, you could do some, um, some really amazing stuff. Um, and it really was an NFL defense. Like there, it, we ran exactly what people run in the NFL. Um, so I, I, I love playing in that system and in that scheme. And in my career, I played in the multiple three, three, five, I played in the three, four, I played in the four, three, I played in the, um, uh, you know, four, two, five. Um, and, uh, I, I really, I think I actually enjoyed playing, um, that scheme uh, more than any of them. That's interesting. Now, following that 2014 season, your, your teammates voted you as the MVP, given everything that you had to go through just to get on the field. How gratifying was that experience for you? Uh, it, was pro- it was probably it's one of the more surreal experiences of my life. And so that and uh, and being named uh, being named captain are, are, are just like two of the highlights that I'll, you know, my my life. Um, and I think it's it was just um, it was pretty awesome to, to 
you know, because I respect everybody on, the on all my teammates so much and to have them vote on that and, and to say it uh, was just a really special thing. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget what it was like sitting there. Um, you know, I, cause I had a broken leg at the time. Right. So I was just, I remember sitting there broken leg and um, it was just a really special, special experience. Um, I, I definitely would have, uh, I would have, I would have traded that uh, to win the last, you know, five games, be healthy, win the national title, but you know, can't always, uh, you know, get what you want, unfortunately. And then, you know, you came back for a fifth year in 2015. We've already talked to a few guys from that year, including Malik Zaire, Kavari Russell, and they all say the same thing. That was the best team that didn't win a ring, given the incredible amount of talent on the roster and yeah. the unfortunate onslaught of injuries you guys had to deal with over the course of that season. That was also, you know, your last season playing football. So when you look back, what memories from that year stick out to you? The thing that sticks out the most are, are really the people and, and sure, like, I actually will go on record as well. Like that's, it's one of the best I'd say on like ones versus ones basis. It's like, it's the best college football team I've, I've, I've probably ever seen. Um, and so it's, it, there's like a short list, right. That I, that I put us on and, and we're arguably in that, in that realm. Um, you know, you can only do so much with injuries, but the stuff I think most about are like really just like the un- unbelievable, like culture guys we also had. Right. So there's one thing I'm being talented but it's another thing to to just have a bunch of guys who are rowing the boat in the same direction and really care. Um, and, and we had a lot of those guys in that locker room. Um, and it wasn't just the guys that were, you know, Jalen's and, and Will's and, um, and, and really like, you know, you look at the entire offensive line and Sheldon and um, but it's also the other, the other guys that like maybe weren't even on the field, but we had some really special people that just, you know, were unbelievable glue, glue people. Um so that's what, like, when I look back, I look back on, on this, those memories and, and just high quality individuals across the board. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it was, it was the best team that I was ever on at Notre Dame. And um, I, I'd put the ones against anybody. You mentioned Jalen there, obviously one of the more talented defensive players Notre Dame's ever had. And, and you played directly next to him for a few years. You got to see him up close every single day. What was the most impressive thing you ever saw him do on the football field? Uh, most impressive thing I ever seen, saw him do off the football field was he, I remember vividly one day, um, we're going in and like, I was a disaster, uh, that season. Like I had basically broken my shoulder in preseason camp. Um, so I had shattered the end of my collarbone, um, where there were like shards of bone everywhere in my, in my arm. I had torn like everything in my shoulder as well, broken my hand and my ankle still wasn't working properly. So I've got like the entire left side of my body is like unusable, like to the point where my arm is a flipper without a shot. Like I can't even move it. And so I would go into the, the training room and I basically lived in there. And I remember like Jalen would come and keep me company. Like, and it felt like he would do it just like out of solidarity. Like Jalen would come in there and he would like, yo, what's up, man? Like, how's it going? Like, I'm just, ah, oh, man, I, my body hurts today. Um, and I remember sitting in the cold plunge um, it's like 2 PM and meetings start at three. And I'm, I'm like, son of a, you know, it's Wednesday. I can't, I can barely move my ankle. Um, I can barely walk, uh, let alone run. And so I'm sitting in there just like, Sigh. and I look up and Jalen's like, you know, as I'm, as I'm sitting there, like looking down at my feet, Jalen's like, man, it's going to be a hot one today. And I look over and Jalen's eating dairy queen chicken nuggets, um, with ranch dressing. 
in the, in the cold plunge. And I, and I'm just like, I don't know how, I don't know how he does it. Like he's got like muscles in places that like, just don't make sense. So that was like, I just remember him like uh, being up, like just, you know, he, we had some funny times like that um, on the football field. He, um, I mean, he did some, he had some unbelievable open field tackles, but he, uh, he jumped, he jumped over. We were playing Boston college and we were on Friday night uh, watching tape together. And we would like call the plays, like watch a full game basically of the, of the opposing team. And we, him and I would call plays and make call, like make our adjustments at the line of scrimmage together, just like, you know, make sure we were in rhythm and, and knew, each, knew what we were each other were going to do. So it would be the whole front seven would do that with the, with the safeties as well. Um, and he saw their, their running back and their running back, like cut on like this uh, pressure from one of their outside linebackers. And he goes, he looks at him, he goes, that dude tries to cut me. I'm going right over him. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay. Um, and I remember it was like third, like third and something. I can't remember. And uh, we like lock eyes before the play because he's he's blitzing off the edge. Um, and sure enough, they slide the protection away. Jalen gets the back. He jumps over him, just destroys the quarterback. Um, and it was just like an unbelievable play. Um, and he had totally called his shot right before. And I went up to him just like, dude, like, are you kidding me? Um, so he did some unbelievable things uh, on the football field. But that, that one that one stuck with me. Yeah, he was a special talent. But I want to talk a little bit about this year's team as well. Um, you said you watch every game still. From what you can see from afar, what do you think is most impressive or what sticks out to you the most about this new defensive coordinator, Marcus Freeman scheme? It's super multiple, right? So I think that they do a lot of fun stuff with the with the front seven. Um, I, I I really like the way that their their linebackers play too. Like I I'm a, I like Drew White a lot. I think Bertrand is a ton of fun to watch. He somehow finds a way to make like 15 tackles a game. Um, so I, I really like the way those guys play. Um, and I think Coach Elson's done a great job with that with, with the front with the front four. They rotate through, you know, bodies after bodies, um, and they just you know they find a way to get pressure on the quarterback. So I, I love the way they play. Um, and you know, with the honestly, like I mean, everyone talks about him, but like. Hamilton's a special player and he just unlocks, I think a lot for you as a, as a coordinator, right. You can put him in man, you can put him in, in the middle of the field. Um, he just unlocks a lot. Um, so the whole, I mean, the whole, I, I think it's a fun defense to watch and then they're super multiple. So it's fun. The last question we have for you before we get into some rapid fire, um, a lot's been made about Brian Kelly 2.0 and, and what Notre Dame's built since the 2016 season, I guess in that sense, you know, you played for, Brian Kelly before this new version or iteration of him, but from what you've observed and from people you still know within the program, what's the biggest difference between when you were wearing the blue and gold and what's in place today? I would actually say that like there, I don't, I don't buy the Brian Kelly 2.0. I actually think Brian has um, every year he finds a way to get better. Um, Like, which I think is just a, it's something for everybody to look at as a, as a leader. Um, so when he came in, he was a certain type of a football coach. Like he's always been a great football coach, right? He didn't get the job at Notre Dame because he wasn't, he's won football games everywhere he's been, but what he's done is he's actually found ways to, you know, improve himself and to improve the people around him every year. And so I think he does a full like breakdown at the end of every season, like what went right, what went wrong culturally, how can we be better schematically? How can we be better? How can we recruit better? How can we like, and the, and the stuff that nobody ever talks about, by the way, 
is like, how can we process wise improve the, like the life of our, of our players. And so it's like, it's little things. When I got there, we did study hall, we did training table. Um, we did all this stuff outside of the Goog. And so, you know, you go to the Goog, which is like totally on one side of campus and you're just like trudging back and forth across campus, killing time. And when you're trying to like, you know, be a good student and like get good grades and you're living at, you know, living in the Goog for six hours a day during the season, it, these little things add up. And so what he's done to actually consolidate everything under one roof, which like nobody that's new here understands like what he did for us there. Um, you know, we started doing mass the day before the game rather than the day of the game to streamline game, like game day activities so that you could sleep a little bit more and just be like be in a different mindset. Um, there's a lot of little things that he's done like on the edges like that, that I think actually drive a ton of value for the program. Um, so I, I think that, it's, it's been really impressive to watch all the stuff that he's done to just get better every year. Um, and I would say, so, I, you know, I, I'm sure everyone says 2.0, but like at the end of the day, like the 2016 season happened for a whole bunch of reasons. I don't think he's, you know, directly to blame. Um, you know, unfortunately you can't win every game. You can't have a winning season every year, but um, I, I'm really impressed with what the program has done. And frankly, I don't think there are many programs in America that can say they're in, anywhere remotely near of a, of an amazing spot as, as ours is. Right. So we're really lucky to be during, you know, here and um, alive during this um, awesome Notre Dame run. I couldn't agree more. All right. We got five quick ones before we let you go. All right, man. First one, flashback to let's say fall of 2014, 2015. It's a Saturday night. You guys just want a home game. Where could we expect to find a younger Joe Schmidt celebrating a win? Uh, with my family at the uh, tailgates, um, after, uh, you know, after the win, I would always have my, I would, you know, basically be the last guy out of the locker room. Um, I would go from, um, you know, basically the locker room, like through the mob of people. And then I would go sit with my parents. My dad would make lamb chops on our like little, uh, little barbecue thing, um, that he, you know, rent. It was, that was great. I actually really missed those times with all the, with all the player families. During an episode of a season with Notre Dame, the Showtime show that followed you guys around that 2015 season, there's a scene of you and Jarek Grace having a conversation in the Basilica. Whose idea was that? Not mine. Um, <laughs> it was like the producer. Yeah, I um, figured. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we like, I mean, sure, like we would go and right. like, we, I have been to Basilica. Yeah. Um, but yes, that was like... Um, that let's just say the producer's idea that was such a frustrating show by the way like i mean i love those guys but like they were they were like you they became a part of your family and a part of your friend group like they were just everywhere man so i love i love all those dudes it was a cool show and it's cool to have it documented um but yes there was some fun time (laughs) okay um all right hypothetically you're playing a game of high stakes beer pong your life's on the line who are you picking as your partner oh my god uh, from the Notre Dame football team or from life? It could be anyone, life. Nate Montana. So Nate was a, a football player at Notre Dame be- uh, before me, and he's yeah, uh, I remember him. He's the single best uh, shot in beer pong I've ever seen in my entire life. All right. Sounds good to me. Uh, this is the recurring question we ask any Notre Dame alum who comes on this pod. What's the weirdest thing you ever saw at Club Fever or during a night out in South Bend? Oh man. Oh man. I don't even know the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Um, there's typically a lot to choose from. So it's, it stumps a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to like, 
politely pass. I've never been, I've never, I've never, what is, what is club fever? Um, <laughs> okay. I've never, never been, ever heard of it. That's um, smart. Michigan's hottest nightclub. Never heard of it. Yeah. It's closed by the way. I know. It's a bummer. All right. Last one. Um, it's USC week. Give us your prediction for how the game is going to play out on Saturday and a final score. Oh man. Well, I mean, they're rudderless, right? They, they don't have a leader. Um, so I think, I, I obviously, I think we're going to win. Um, I actually think that like, I think we're going to, I think we're going to put up some points. Um, so I, I hope we, I think we're going to win by, you know, two, three scores and score like 35 plus. So um, that's, I think that's what, that's what I'm going with. Um, and I think, you know, I think, I think Cone plays a great game and um, I think offensively we do great. So I'm, I'm excited. For that. Yeah. I would love a comfortable victory. I, I think it's, I think it's going to be comfortable. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. All right, man. Joe, this has been great. Thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. You're welcome back anytime and uh, take care. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode. We'll be back next week to recap everything that happened in the game between Notre Dame and USC. Until then, shoot us a follow on social media at Sons of Set Irish, and please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. Bye.